Is the United States in danger of losing its competitive edge in science and technology? A new intelligence report argues that America is falling behind. That says China has been making big moves in recent years. From attracting more talent to its universities to hosting the world's top 10 research institutions and key technological fields, with some secret operations too. As Beijing works to leapfrog U.S. technology, will Washington regain its lost ground, or will China take the lead? Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Is the U.S. losing its edge in science and technology? A security think tank highlighted that concern in its Thursday report. The key findings? From quantum computing to hypersonic missiles and future technologies, China is surging ahead. But how? Let's take a closer look. In 37 out of 44 key technologies and researches examined, China has a stunning lead over the U.S. and other nations. That's according to the Australian Strategic Policy Institute's latest study, funded by the U.S. State Department. Its report puts Chinese researchers ahead of Americans across critical sectors like defense, space, robotics, biotechnology, artificial intelligence, and quantum technology. In some fields, all of the world's top 10 research institutions are found to be based in China. Among the 44 technologies, the U.S. leads research in the remaining seven. Those are fields like semiconductor design and development, as well as computers and vaccines. The report says China's current technological leadership also gives it an advantage in future technologies that don't yet exist. But why is the U.S. falling behind? An intelligence community program's founder explains. And whoever gets the breakthrough first, first wins. Okay. Actually, that's not what China's doing. They are maneuvering in all technology worldwide, both offensively and defensively, to generate a competitive advantage. That's as China has been accused of stealing valuable technologies from the West and manipulating supply chains. Data also shows one-fifth of top Chinese researchers were trained in a Five Eyes country, an intelligence alliance comprising the U.S., Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and the U.K. As to why that matters, According to the report, China's current research strength in quantum communication could result in it going dark to Western surveillance and intelligence. China also has a particular interest and performance in military and space sectors, like hypersonics. What's more, the report found that China is likely to emerge with a monopoly in 10 fields, like synthetic biology, as well as electric batteries, 5G, and nano manufacturing. The study is now calling for alliance among democratic nations to create secure supply chains and greater research investment. The Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, is taking issue with Tesla CEO Elon Musk. That's over his comments on the possibility COVID-19 leaked from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Beijing denies the lab leak theory. On Sunday, some Twitter users accused Dr. Anthony Fauci, former chief medical advisor to the president, of funding gain-of-function research at the Wuhan lab. The lab is at the center of the dispute about COVID-19's origin. One user asked whether that means Fauci funded the development of COVID-19. Musk replied that Fauci funded it through a pass-through organization called EcoHealth. Some background, documents show the National Institutes of Health, a U.S. federal agency, gave millions of dollars to EcoHealth for research on bat-based coronaviruses. EcoHealth then gave 600000 to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The project was pulled by the Trump administration in 2020 after the pandemic broke out. 
Back to Musk, Chinese state-run media soon criticized the Tesla founder, warning him that he could be, quote, smashing his pot in China. The saying is similar to the idea of Musk biting the hand that feeds him. China is Tesla's second largest market. The regime keeps an eye on Western businesses that operate in China and often takes drastic action if it feels they're stepping out of line. One of Apple's top manufacturers says Chinese supplies are pouring out of the country. AirPods maker Gore-Tex says the companies are bracing for impact, preparing for potential conflict between Washington and Beijing. And as some of them shift out of China, they're headed for other locales in Asia. Sam Brownback, former U.S. ambassador at large for international religious freedom, points out the long-term impacts of backing a nation run by an authoritarian regime. If you're a big company, you want to come in, you want to invest half a million dollars, they'll subsidize it, they'll make sure you have the labor there, they'll make sure that the roads are there, and they'll do it quickly. But that doesn't mean it's good on a long term for you or your company or for, or for global peace. Goretech's deputy chairman says the tech company is funneling $280 million into a new factory in Vietnam. It's also looking to grow in India, the new hotspot for investor interest, both for its market and manufacturing abilities. Apple's manufacturing ecosystem is centered in China, with device makers like Goretech and Foxconn based there. Those companies together employ millions of workers. So the Silicon Valley tech giant has tiptoed around the idea of reducing its China-based investment. Some reports suggest it could take nearly a decade to relocate just 10% of Apple's capacity. While the Goretech executive believes it may happen significantly faster. American tech giants are urging companies like Goretech to venture outside China. That's amid Washington's wide-reaching microchip and export restrictions on Beijing. One of the world's top investment firms is looking to vet certain clients tied to its China branch, and it's reaching out to U.S. national security experts for help. Sequoia Capital's China arm pulled in a record $8.5 billion in 2022. Some of that money came from major institutional investors, prompting concerns on Capitol Hill. To address them, the company reportedly voiced plans to screen certain investments those funds make. Independent U.S.-based experts will handle that vetting process and search out any possible national security concerns. As for what's subject to that screening, it targets investments in Chinese semiconductor or quantum computing companies. Sequoia China made nearly two dozen investments in Chinese semiconductors and tech companies from 2021 to 2022 but hasn't pushed new backing since the screening process began. The Biden administration is expected to soon unveil investment restrictions as well as its own screening process. Those rules will also target Chinese companies making advanced technology. China is building its own LEAL satellites in an effort to stifle Starlink, operated by Elon Musk's SpaceX. LEO is short for Low Earth Orbit. This type of satellite operates at a very low altitude from the ground, aiming to provide high-speed internet services in remote locations. With the U.S. tightening rules for semiconductor exports to China, Chinese leader Xi Jinping is calling to develop Beijing's own self-reliant technology. Chinese state-owned spacecraft maker Kasich will launch its first LEAL satellite in September. Beijing sees Starlink as a U.S. military tool for surveillance. 
That's as the satellites carry devices which monitor the space environment. Last year, Chinese military researchers repeatedly called for advancing new technologies to destroy Starlink once its satellites entered China's sensitive space region. Elon Musk says Chinese officials have directly asked to not provide Starlink services in China. Starlink is also playing a major role amid the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Last year, Elon Musk agreed to enable internet services to Ukraine to counter Russia's internet controls. Fewer births than deaths. China saw its population decrease last year for the first time in six decades. A dire economic situation, blocking many young couples from having children. Now, the population drops is posing massive challenges to the world's second largest economy. Here's the story. There are no golden years of comfort for Wang Fengqin, a 70-year-old villager in China's Rust Belt province of Heilongjiang. Despite growing pains in her abdomen, she avoids going to hospital. Instead, her and her husband's old-age pensions support their two sons who are in their 40s. Other people say, Wang Fenqing, you are so blessed to have two sons, but they don't earn enough and so I have to support them. As China's birth rate falls and workforce shrinks, the strain on the country's fragmented, poorly funded pension system has soared. China's population dropped for the first time in six decades last year, and Heilongjiang is a cautionary tale of the ticking demographic time bomb faced by the rest of the country. Over a quarter of Heilongjiang's people were aged 60 or above by last year. The province, which borders Russia in the north, has among the lowest birth rates and smallest average pension incomes. And the dependence of younger generations on pensions in Heilongjiang also bodes ill for local government finances and efforts to boost birth rates. Reuters spoke to 32-year-old Harbin resident Ma Haiyang, who still lives with his mother and says he will never have children, except in the unlikely event he becomes a millionaire. He theorizes it's the norm in northeast China for parents to subsidize their children. Currently, 11 of China's 31 provincial-level jurisdictions are running pension budget deficits, with Heilongjiang's being the biggest. China launched its private pension sector last year after four years of pilots. But what is in the works is unclear. Any reforms are likely to be unpopular. After recent cuts to medical benefits in some provinces, video online showed hundreds of older people taking to the streets this month in the cities of Wuhan and Dalian to protest the moves. What does life look like for the region's retired farmers? Wang Zhengling is 71 years old. He works 10 hours a day. It's a common schedule for the farmers of his age in the province. He and his wife each have about three acres of land. They can farm it themselves or rent it to others in the village for a small income. On top of that, they receive pensions equivalent to about $15 a month. The Communist Party gives us around 100 yuan a month. To make ends meet, Wang must repair roads and perform other odd jobs. Heilongjiang used to be China's industrial heartland. But in the past decades, a great number of state-owned factories were shut down due to poor economic returns. Some moved south, and much of the working-age population followed. 
Warnings about Beijing's military expansion are getting louder. The latest comes from U.S. Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro. He says China is outpacing the U.S. in the number of ships it operates, but not in the quality of them. Here's more. The U.S. is falling behind China in terms of warship production. That's the warning from U.S. Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro when he addressed the National Press Club. The Navy chief says Beijing seeks more than 400 vessels by 2030, up from the current 340. This compares to the less than 300 ships the U.S. now possesses. The Pentagon plans to field 350 warships by 2045, which still lags behind China. And that isn't counting the retirement of older ships. Del Toro points to Beijing's shipyard output as a real threat. While China has 13 shipyards churning out naval vessels, the U.S. has only seven. Del Toro says that a key factor behind the gap is that the U.S. is struggling to find skilled labor, but communist China sees no restrictions on its labor use. He explains they use slave labor in building their ships, but that's what we're up against, so it does present a significant advantage. He cautions that the potential shift in naval dominance might rattle the world order, considering China's threats to Taiwan and the South China Sea. But this doesn't mean that the U.S. has lost its position as a superpower at sea. Del Toro stresses, quote, In many ways, our shipbuilders are better shipbuilders. That's why we have a more modern, more capable, more lethal Navy than they do. They script their people to fight. We actually train our people to think. Worth noting, the U.S. Navy still has more tonnage than China, meaning larger and heavier armed vessels and stronger missile launch capabilities. Another U.S. weapons sale to Taiwan is getting the green light. Washington approved the potential sale of close to $620 million in new weapons for the island on Wednesday. That includes missiles for its F-16 fighter jets and related equipment. Let's zoom in. The sale includes 200 air-to-air missiles and 100 missiles that can take out land-based radar stations. It also includes launchers and aircraft interface computers, as well as training and test munitions, technical and logistic support, and spare parts. The main contractors are Raytheon and Lockheed Martin, two firms Beijing recently sanctioned. The island's defense ministry thanked the U.S. in a statement today. It says the decision to continue supplying defensive weapons will help maintain stability in the region and that it's fresh proof of solid relations between the U.S. and Taiwan. Taiwan's defense ministry reported large-scale Chinese Air Force incursions Thursday, the second day in a row. It observed 19 Chinese aircraft flying in Taiwan's air defense zone on Wednesday and says it spotted 21 aircraft in the last 24 hours. Coming up, the religious freedom situation in China is a contentious one, but what's really behind it? The god of the church is Xi Jinping, uh, and what he wants to do is to create a, uh, a, a political system in which he is venerated and viewed as a quasi-religious figure. We sat down with Brett Sharps, director of the International Center for Law and Religious Studies at the Brigham Young University to find out more. Those details after the break, here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. The god of China's state-controlled church is the head of the Chinese Communist Party. 
This, according to Brett Scharfs, director of the International Center for Law and Religion Studies at the Brigham Young University. We sat down with him during the International Religious Freedom Summit in Washington for more. Brett Scharfs, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So you do a lot in law and religion. Can you give us a little bit of your background and your current title? Yeah, so my name is Brett Scharfs and I'm a law professor at Brigham Young University Law School and we have a little center there called the International Center for Law and Religion Studies and I'm the director of that center. And our mission is to try to study law and religion and to also promote religious freedom for all people in all places. I want to zoom in on China. So you said a Chinese person introduced this term human dignity. So how does that play out right now in communist China? So it turns out that uh, China has a lot of hostility towards some types of human rights discourse. Uh, but there is a human rights discourse in China and there's a human dignity discourse in China. It turns out that if you go to the ancient Chinese philosophies or worldviews, whether it's Confucianism, Taoism, Moism, all of them have strands of what we would call human dignity in their thinking. And so what we're trying to do in China is we're trying to learn from Chinese scholars who are thinking deeply about human dignity within their own Chinese traditions. Um, we think that uh, human dignity will resonate deepest when it feels authentic and when it comes from within the worldview and the way of thinking of the places where you're trying to promote it. And kind of expanding on that a bit to say religion. So the Chinese Communist Party says religion exists in China, you know, you're free to practice your thing. But then we hear these stories of, say, house Christians getting persecuted, the Uyghurs or other spiritual faiths. So what have you seen in terms of that area? So in China, in a way, it seems disingenuous. But the way the Communist Party thinks about religious freedom is they say, we have officially recognized registered religious groups and they operate under the supervision of the party and they are free, they have religious freedom. And then if you're not a registered group, you're not a religion. And so the fact that your religious freedom is not uh, vindicated is in a, in a way a category error because it's not religion. They might define it as superstition or as an evil cult or something else. So in your experience, is it only, say, the faiths that are, you know, sanctioned under the party, say the five churches, are those the ones who are able to get this legal paperwork? What about all the other different faiths? So the way scholars think about religion in China is they think think about the, the red market, which is the officially recognized churches, which are really uh, run and organized by the Communist Party. Each of them have a government bureaucracy that oversees the regulation and the, the oversight of uh, their work. You then have a, uh, a black market, which are uh, religious groups that are forbidden uh, and you get here groups like Falun Gong for example which are singled out for persecution. A lot of religious life takes place in sort of a gray market which is not regulated with the official recognized churches but it's also permitted and it's tacitly allowed and 
the oversight of those groups is different. And so if you're a registered religious group, you're going to be overseen by the Ministry of Religious Affairs. If you're an unregistered religious group, you're going to be overseen by the police. And so it's a very different type of relationship where these groups are trying to uh, work with and inform the police what they're doing and for the most part they're given some space to operate but it's it's more a permission than a right and so it's not very stable and you're quite vulnerable. You singled out um, Falun Gong, right, that you said was singled out for persecution. What do you know in terms of why that was? Because it seems in, say, the early 90s it was super popular and even the government was pushing it in a way and then overnight it seems it was suddenly cracked down. What have you seen in terms of why? Yeah, so I think what really happened is it grew so quickly and f the government wasn't completely aware of what was happening and it be came to be seen as a threat. Uh, Falun Gong uh, organized some protests. One time they actually created a human ring around the compound where a lot of the government officials lived. And I think this really set off alarm bells. And I think the crackdown against Falun Gong was largely because uh, anytime you have a sort of a monopoly party running a state, uh, they're afraid of any um, alternate sources of loyalty, alternate sources of authority, and I think Falun Gong came to be seen as a threat. Some have argued that it almost seems like faith in the party, the Chinese Communist Party, is akin to, say, a religious faith, because it's almost making people believe only in the party. How do you deal with that? I think of it as a uh, an established church, and the god of the church is Xi Jinping, uh, and what he wants to do is to create a uh, a, a political system in which he is venerated and viewed as a quasi-religious figure. Now, the, he would strongly disagree with that characterization because communist is an official atheistic ideology. But if you look at the history of China, you have a series of emperors, and those emperors operate by divine right. Uh, they are the emperor of heaven. And so I think if you look at the sweep of Chinese history and look at the way Mao envisioned himself and the way Xi Jinping today envisions himself, it's in a way a part of that historical experience of sort of the emperor ruling with the authority of heaven behind him. In China they'll say the Catholic Church is free because it's free from the influence of the Vatican, a foreign power. Our Chinese church is controlled by Chinese people, and so that is freedom. Well, it's a very distorted view of freedom to say that freedom for the Catholic Church is independence from the Vatican. Uh, if you don't have to be an expert on theology or uh, church organization to realize that the head of the Catholic Church is the Pope, and for the Catholic Church to have religious freedom, people need to be able to take instruction from and communicate with uh, the Pope. What do you see in terms of, say, ethnic minority groups like the Uyghurs? Um, the situation with the Uyghurs is an old problem. We've become more aware of it in recent years, but it really is tied to sort of um, 
ideologies of trying to respond to what's described as violent extremism or terrorism. And so just as after 9-11, we had a lot of uh, concern about terrorism and a lot of sort of attention paid to uh, minority faiths that were perceived as being dangerous, you see that on steroids in China. And the rationale they use for the imprisonment of perhaps millions, perhaps more than a million of uh, Uyghurs into re-education camps is as a response to violent extremism. Uh, so that's the rationale. It feels really pretextual, but that's the rationale that the Chinese government gives. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.